if everyone gets a fair chance to vote, the good ideas went out. The good ideas went out when everyone has a fair chance to vote and everything's on the up and up. It's when you get into the funny business that you start to skew outcomes. So I choose the side of getting everyone the, the opportunity to vote, make sure that they have the access and the opportunity and let the chips fall where they may. The right side, the correct side will win when everyone has the opportunity to vote. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today, Luis Lozada, is the former general counsel and now CEO of Democracy Works. Democracy Works is a nonpartisan nonprofit that builds technology for democracy, focusing on voters and voting. Their products include TurboVote and Ballot Scout. I much enjoyed hearing Lewis's story and learning about Democracy Works. It's an enterprise you should know. So after a quick word from my sponsor, my interview with Lewis at Democracy Works. Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from Time Plots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. Time Plots Library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount. Lewis, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Sure. I'm Lewis Lozada, CEO at Democracy Works. I'm a lawyer by trade, and I grew up a big fan of the law and government and social studies classes, American history. Those are the ones that really got me excited. Went to college and thought that I was going to go straight through to law school, but in college, it was during the uh, dot-com boom. And graduating from college with a degree in managing information systems and uh, started my career as a software developer at an insurance company. And after doing that for four to five years, I went on to law school, went to Northwestern Law and came out of law school, began my practice as an intellectual property attorney, trademarks, copyrights, patents, and really enjoyed that. Wanted to be an entertainment lawyer because I was a big fan of the show Entourage, <laughs> which was big during the time when I was in law school before then. But uh, it's a lot tougher to become an entertainment lawyer, sports agent than they make it out to be on television. Yeah, I worked a lot with technology, worked a lot with patents, design, trademarks, copyrights, really understanding ideas and information, how it's collected, how it's created, how it's protected. After working in law firms for a while, I really wanted to use somewhat of a, a slippery term, stop making rich people richer and do something a little bit different with my law degree. As a child, I'd grown up in the YMCA and uh, I saw that the YMCA was looking for a trademark attorney to protect its brand in the United States and it felt like a perfect marriage. I learned how to swim, went to after school and summer camp at the Y. So it was a nice coming home. And I did that for almost four years. One of the last big initiatives that I was a part of at the YMCA 
was developing a nationwide membership program and topical for the sort of work that I do now. It relied on building systems that looked at public records to determine who was on a sex offender registry. And that's when I got an appreciation of publicly available data and the value of it. I started working a lot with data security, data privacy, protecting, identifying, collecting data. And it was in 2020 when the country was in the throes of a pandemic and on the precipice of, of an election. And I was thinking to myself, I really need to get in the game. I really want to find a way where I can do work that's um, directed towards democracy and this election. Everything seemed pivotal and existential at the time. And that's when, again, I found a position, a posting that matched with things that I was really into when I was to become the general counsel of Democracy Works. Those two months where I was trying to get the attention of the organization and going through the uh, process of getting the position were some of the most nerve-wracking because I felt like I really needed to be here. I mean, I'd signed up to be a poll worker in Orlando, Florida, but that almost seemed too small of a task. And when I saw what Democracy Works did, it had programs around voter registration, around ballot tracking. It had a big initiative where it was activating the corporate community to get behind a democracy called the Civic Alliance. It was the largest repository of polling location information, powering Google search results. It's like, wow, like this is a place where it really marries all of my interests. It's got the, the government, the social and civic activities that I'm such a fan of. It's dealing with public records data. I'm going to be the attorney there. <laughs> it was a machinating heaven for me. So yeah, I joined in August of 2020, right in the mix, in the middle of that election. And here I am three and a half years later, became its CEO in uh, April of 2022. And uh, yeah, it's been a wild ride. We've seen tech change. We've seen elections change. We've seen everything change just in the last four years. That's a little bit about me and a very high level overview of Democracy Works. Whenever someone really is gunning for a job and they think it's going to be the end all be all, usually I hear I was somewhat disappointed by the reality. It doesn't sound like that in your case. Yes and no. So when I came <laughs> to Democracy Works as its general counsel, reviewing agreements, trying to figure out how, for example, we wouldn't run afoul of the law when it comes to registration activities in different places. Or there might be a particular brand that wanted to do an activation, a college marketing thing around voting and our brand. It was typical lawyer work. It wasn't really the field touch stuff that I saw some of my colleagues doing. And then things shifted over time. You know, the organization matured and I was placed in a position where I'm making more of decisions now. The legal work began to recede in the background. It was more about the strategic work, the direction of the organization, thinking about like, where is the technology going? Where is the data needed? How are these brands, these big distribution channels that you work with like Google and Facebook, where are they when it comes to elections and their interest in supporting democracy? So that's when it began to become something more tied to the end game, which is being part of democracy and being part of elections. Not something that I could have imagined in August of 2020 when I took the position. It was just like, democracy works. Cool. Great place to work. Really cool products. Now I'm much more involved in the strategy and in sort of evangelizing the space a little bit about certain upcoming matters and challenges. So if I didn't know it then, I know it now. I'm absolutely in the place that I wanted to be. Well, it also seems like 
a pretty good preparation for becoming CEO to have to spend some time getting to know the enterprise and general counsel seems as good a place as many to start to really understand what the enterprise is up to. Absolutely. And and even my time at the YMCA, it being a nonprofit as well, learned a lot about nonprofit financing, learned a lot about fundraising. I mean, I worked hand in hand with the financial development team there and got really, really schooled on the difference between a 501c3 and a C4. Then coming to Democracy Works and being the only lawyer, whether it was legal matters around staff, labor and employment, and really got me to understand what are the things that are important in a changing workplace is there are other factors that impact elections and organizations that didn't exist 20, 30 years ago that are present day issues for CEOs at any organization. So yeah, no, I got to see the things from the legal perspective, from the inside out, knew where all the bodies are buried. When you ascend to the CEO position, you have a very good vantage point of what's going on. It's right in the organization, what might not be going as well. And yeah, very good preparation. So I had some emails back and forth with a Mr. Seth Flaxman a number of years ago, who I understand to be the founder. Tell me what you know about the founding and the run of Democracy Works up to the point where you get hired. So Seth is one of the people who hired me as general counsel, and, and Seth remains in, in big support of the organization. It's funny, we just had an in-person all-staff, the first one we'd had in three years since before the pandemic, and I made sure that Seth was there because I wanted him to talk to staff about the founding of the organization. And what was the use case, the issue at hand that he was trying to solve when he started Democracy Works as essentially a graduate school project in 2010, 2011 at the Harvard Kennedy School? I actually have this intern paper that he put together. It's in the office in Brooklyn. And I'm not gonna, I'm gonna mangle the title, but essentially using technology to register voters. And this is back in 2010. And at the time, Rock the Vote was probably the first one that was really big into activating the youth vote and using different distribution channels to do that. But Democracy Works came along and leaned into the campus setting and used its flagship product, TurboVote, to create these challenges around the country, these TurboVote challenges. And it was all about getting college students and and, and the youth vote and, and people in corporations on this platform to ensure that they receive notifications about voting. And if you have Seth answer the question, he'll tell you, while I was in college, I missed elections. Had I gotten notifications, I would have participated. And that's pretty much the genesis of democracy work. It's using technology to provide those nudges to folks, the reminders, not every election's on election day, not every primary is on the same day. And voting is complicated, unfortunately. And this is using, at the time, emerging technologies to ensure that people are constantly being notified. This is something that's been replicated by a number of organizations now. And it's great that we have more people in the space. But in its infancy, there wasn't that many people that were using technology and cell phones and emails to nudge voters and ensure that they had the information and knew when to register and vote and all those sorts of things. My understanding it's been a strictly nonpartisan enterprise. Is that correct? Absolutely. And and there's nonpartisan, and then there's what we do at Democracy Works. And I'll try to entangle the two. Under the statute 501c3, you can engage in registration activities so long as they don't as they don't favor any particular party or issue. 
I think that's a pretty low bar. And there are many organizations that are involved in voter registration and, and um, voter education activities that do this sort of work, but have the patina of leading in one direction or the other. One of the superpowers of democracy works is its relationship with election offices around the country. I mentioned earlier that we have polling location information. We're the largest repository. We get a lot of that by having direct relationships with 42 states in the District of Columbia. As of this recording, we're constantly trying to get to the 50. But the reason we can have these relationships is because we're so fiercely nonpartisan. If our organization were to lead in one direction or the other, you would imperil the information spigot in any number of states. And there's a guiding light here. It is our superpower. It is what we hold above everything else. It's being nonpartisan. We cannot put our thumb in the scale on any particular issue, a particular party, any particular candidate. And that's what ensures that we're able to get this information that's so critical to then spin it up and get it out to voters via the various distribution channels. So you've mentioned TurboVote. Can you expand upon what exactly happens with TurboVote? And then what are the other tech platforms or sites that you guys have built out? TurboVote is a voting engagement platform that will ingest your information, whether it's your phone number or your email address. And based on your address, will feed you notifications on upcoming registration deadlines, upcoming elections, information of value for those that are trying to participate in the electoral process. Newer iterations of TurboVote will include ballot information. So the candidates that are on the ballot or a particular ballot initiative, polling location information, not enough to just register the vote. You actually have to get to a polling location and, and do the exercise. So these are all the features that, uh, of TurboVote. This is not dissimilar to some of the other um, entities in the space. Uh, vote.org is one of the ones that due to its, uh, its URL, it's, that's a great brand and, you know, and folks are very familiar with it. You've got others like Rock Lavelle, Civic Nation has, has platforms. There, there are a number of organizations that are doing uh, great work in the space. And, and TurboVote is another one in the field when it comes to voter engagement, electronic digital voter engagement. I think what separates us a little bit is the direct relationships that we have with election offices around the country. And we go a little bit beyond just voter engagement. It's this data collection that we do. We've spun up a, an API so that other entities, other platforms can get that authoritative information source from election offices direct into their products. We not only participate in the space, but we also feed the space from a, from a data perspective. Is Ballot Ready uh, a company that you uh, interact with? Well, so Ready is an incumbent in the field. Ballot Ready, unlike some of the others, though, is a for-profit entity. Does that mean that you that you can't work with them? Or something we can't work with them. We do a lot of similar things. So more of a competitor than in in, in certain respects. Yes, I mean, listen, there there's enough uh, food for everyone here. One thing I will say is that for a nonprofit, the incentives for us is always pro voter. I think having worked in nonprofits and for profits, at some at some point at for profit, you have to turn a profit. There's always that to account for. It's similar to to vote.org and a lot of your organization in the space. There, there, there are different ways for groups to reach voters, and it's, it's good that they have a suite of options. Was it always a nonprofit? Was that the vision originally? Yes, this has been a 501c3 since the beginning, and we don't have an advocacy arm like some of the other nonprofits. You don't do any C4 work. So yeah, it's, it's always been a nonprofit. I think it's interesting for me, coming from a background of having worked for profits and nonprofits, a lot of what we do 
as a sort of hybrid approach to it. You know, when you start selling data and creating products and you have engineering teams, it starts to look and feel like a for-profit. But we are most certainly a nonprofit. We're doing something that the IRS recognizes as for the public benefit. And unfortunately, in the United States, it isn't something that has a robust market. It's not like folks are beating down the door to pay for election information. We require that revenue stream that comes from the charitable sector because it takes you know, folks that are really want to make sure that folks have access to information to support organizations like ours. Otherwise, they wouldn't be able to exist. I couldn't help but notice that you got a grant from Mackenzie Scott, former Bezos, who's been putting billions into the charitable sector, unrestricted grants. And it's kind of an honor beyond just getting the money to have that land on you. Can you tell me a little bit about what fundraising has been like over the years and then how that has been helpful? Yes, yeah, so we are honored and we are extremely fortunate to be uh, supported by Mackenzie Scott this year. I, I don't know if you saw a little blurb that I, that I put out about it. Um, I said, not a moment too soon, because we're at such a critical juncture right now when it comes to elections infrastructure and democracy work that, no pun intended, that the resources arrived at, at a great hour. And, and, and it was a great hour because, so in the run-up to 2020, there was plenty of charitable support for organizations engaged in elections and democracy work. And then coming out of 2020, in response to legislation in 2021, it really created some cold feet in the corporate sector. It created some cold feet, perhaps in the charitable sector, supporting some of these organizations. Can you explain that? What? Why? I, I didn't quite grasp why. Yeah, I mean, so coming out of 2020, you had a house that wanted to bring folks from the technology sector into account and talk about how they potentially were being biased in some of the ways that they were policing their platforms. Facebook and, and Mark Zuckerberg was an example of this, and. Or the, 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 the resources that you put into some organizations derisively termed as Zotbox, you know, legislation popped up around the country where election officers couldn't accept it. With respect to the charitable sector, they became more discerning of, of participating in the space. I can tell you that Democracy Works was a far more effective fundraiser as an organization in 2019, 2020 than it was in 21 and 22. Part of that was exodus from some of the corporate sector. And some of it was a pullback from the charitable sector. You could also potentially tie this to fluctuations in the market. You know, these are gifted dollars. Or just like the electoral cycle. Maybe it ramps up in 23, 24. I don't know. And that's the thing. Yeah. Our organization and our sister organization, organization in the space have not seen the same enthusiasm leading into 24 that we saw in 2020. I mean, 2019, people were already getting ramped up for spending and, you know, our organizations did not struggle to fundraise. We did not see that sort of energy in 2023. And to date in 2024, we haven't seen it in the same way. So that's why when the McKenzie Scott resources came in, it really was an exhale moment for us because we know that we've got a lot of work to do coming into 2024. Democracy Works is at the forefront when it comes to supporting generative AI platforms on election information. We'll get into that a little bit later. There's a ramp up period here. I mean, we've got engineers, you've got a ton of data to collect, and we've got a, a, a voting public that is very concerned about missing disinformation on digital platforms. And I think that's our sweet spot. So getting that support was huge and it really catapults us going into 2024. And then the halo effect is great too. If you're on McKenzie's nice list, you're likely to end up on some other nice lists as well. So yeah, 
all around a big, big boon for our organization. I didn't see an amount on that. Is it was it a one-time gift? Is it multiple gifts? And what was the scale? So it's it's a one-time gift. It's unrestricted. We chose to not disclose the amount. Organizations that are involved in our space often are the target of attacks in electoral years. Don't you have to report that on a 990 ultimately? Sure. And yeah. it'll appear on a 990 in 2025. There's, there's such a lab when it comes to reporting those things being public. But I think for our organization, you want to keep the attention on the work and rather than the accounting of it. We are already maligned as being part of some sort of left-wing conspiracy to to do all sorts of- A left-wing things. conspiracy to help people vote? Right. But you know that that's not the way it gets framed on the evening news, depending on where you watch it. So- to the extent we can keep the focus on the work, we try to do that and the numbers figure themselves out. It was a, a, a significant gift for our organization. It helps power us in 2024. We'll still need help to power us beyond 2024, but we're extremely grateful of Mackenzie and her team. I started to ask you about TurboVote and other apps, and I don't think we got a chance to get to what are the other things that you guys are building. So maybe you can work down that road. In addition to TurboVote, which is kind of our in-house distribution system, it's a platform that you can pick up a small organization. We call it a no or low code solution if you want to engage your voters. We also have just the raw data and that's the Democracy Works Elections API. If you're a developer and you're able to engage in more exotic programming, we can power your platform with all the information that you'll need to get your audiences ready for voting in any cycle, not just in a presidential. And that's only for a nonprofit? It's for anybody. For I mean, anybody? We have a, yeah, we have a number of for-profit consumers in addition, in addition to nonprofit. I mean, again, we are all about getting as many people as possible the information. Do you share who does use your API? Is that public? I think we'd be willing to share. There are certain contractual things a particular entity may not want to be disclosed as a customer. We don't prohibit it as, as a matter of course. But yeah, sure. If we got a request, I, I believe that we would we would share the information subject to any sort of legal restriction based on contract. When our standard operandus is not a standard MO is to not hide it. It's not anything that we're doing that's untoward. Keep going with with what else you're. So you got the API, the API, the API. also. Yep. We also have a ballot tracking platform called Ballot Scout that we developed and and grew here beginning in 2014 and. It's what it sounds like. It's a service for election officers around the country to be able to inform their voters on the status of their vote by mail or absentee ballot. And in the past, we've supported the entire state of South Carolina, the majority of Virginia, and you know, populous counties around the country. That's a product that was born and developed here at Democracy Works. And then from less from a product perspective, more of a program, we've got something called the Civic Alliance. And it's uh, coming together of over 1,300 corporations in support of democracy. And the way that manifests itself is companies saying to their employees, we're going to ensure that you have paid time off to vote. That is the law in some places, not the law in every place. It's companies opening up their footprints or their real estate to serve as polling locations, which is big. An example, Old Navy opened up some real estate polling location. Big proponents of what the NBA has done, not having games on election day and opening up their arenas as point locations. And also providing resources for companies to provide civic education to their employees. You know, companies are one of the last places where um, people actually come together, some different strikes, different opinions, and actually sit down together and work on tasks. 
in a similar way that you might disagree about a particular sales strategy or something like that. You may disagree on political strike, but if we can put curriculum into these spaces, which are already serving as classrooms, you know, they're getting DEI training, they're getting professional development training of all sorts. I think it's a, an opportunity to get a second bite at the apple to the extent you're not happy with the quality of civic education at the high school and college levels over the last 15, 20 years, while the workplace gives us yet another classroom when folks are of voting age. To um, implement some comedy, some understanding of um, comedy, C-O-M-I-T-Y, not E-D-Y, about civics and democracy and government, and just getting people to listen to each other and talk to each other again. So, you know, Civic Alliance, 1,300 companies employing 5.8 million people in the United States, products and services that are ingested and used and you know, consumed by every American. It gives us an opportunity, again, to reach the public on, on a very important matter of civic education. So those are some of the flagships, TurboVote. You got Ballot Scout, you've got the Elections API, you got Civic Alliance. We're doing a lot. And, you know, there's probably that old adage about nonprofits and mission creep here, but it's all very important work. And we do it because we care about democracy. Traditionally in nonprofits, the transition from founder to first CEO that came from the outside, which you mostly did is hazardous or tricky or you know you get the founder syndrome question how has it been for you and and seth so i've only been as successful as i believe myself to be on the shoulders of a lot of the support from seth flaxman the trickiest part for our organization has been the fundraising and when you're the founder and you've been here 10 years all of those relationships live with you when seth departed it took a while to identify his successor and it made the funding field and some of our partners jittery. So when I came in, in a permanent capacity, five months after his last day, there was a lot of, call it repair to do there because folks were understandably worried about, is the organization going to continue? Here we are, April, since April of 2022, we're about 60, 17 months along the way and we're doing great work, supported 3,000 elections last year. We got Tim McKenzie and Scott support. Um, we've got funders that had not been with us in 22 and 23, coming back around in 24. So I think we've gotten over the hump there. I am very much rooted in history, tradition, and legacy. And I like to ensure that our organization continues to engage with Seth and his co-founder, Katie Peters. We have a tradition of board members and folks that have supported this organization and have built the products that have made this organization. So staying connected to them as well has been critical. And yeah, just, just doing things the way I've learned how to do them over the last 17, 18, 21 years of professional life. Why did he decide to leave or why did the both of them decide to leave? I mean, I know having run something that I founded for a decade or so, one sometimes wants to do the next chapter or you tire of something or you maybe even think someone else could be better at leading it to bigger and better. But what was the situation here? Yeah, I mean, probably a question best posed to either Seth or Katie. I, I, I could say for my part, I've never been in a job more than five years. And I can't imagine being the founder of something and then being there 10, 11 years and, and the cycles both election cycles and employee cycles, anything like that, it gets you. Both Seth and Katie are younger than I am, so they probably benefit from having new challenges and new experiences. So uh, I won't speak for them. I just think they, they built a great organization, and I'm fortunate enough to be in a position to carry their legacy forward. 
How big is Democracy Works at this point in terms of staff and, and so on? Yeah. So as of today, we're 52 employees at our height. The longest roster, largest roster we've ever been 77 at the end of 2020. And presidential years have a lot more research that's necessary. Uh, so we'll probably increase our number off of 52 this year as well. But I think the the comfortable sweet spot for this organization is, is 65, 70, 75 folks. Um, anything beyond that, it gets a little more expensive than the charitable sector is able to support. What do you view as the biggest challenges between now and election 2024? Boy, all right. Um, how much time you got? I think the one that I hear about the most up to 25 minutes before our chat here is the, the generative AI conversation. Whether it's social media or search engines and now it's generative AI, folks typically look for information about elections or election guidance in a place that's not hosted by the secretary of state or the election office in the state. So, you know, ensuring that the information that's accurate for voters is is so, so critical. And then there's a lot of different flavors to that information. Let me just ask you about that. So is the concern about generative AI that people will use it to post misinformation about voting and, and, trick people into going to the wrong place or the wrong day, or which we've experienced in small in every election as a dirty trick. What are exactly are you referring to there? I think it's a lot of, uh, pardon the term, some hysteria around the impact that AI may have on the election. This will be the first presidential election that we had in the era of ChatGPT and some of the other platforms. And we've seen that these platforms can produce content at scale. So you alluded to the tricks that we've seen in the past. Robocalls have been around forever. Mailers that are designed to deceive have been around forever. But now you have platforms that can generate these things at scale. And I think that is the concern that's being voiced by a number of people right now. Here's the thing. There are a lot of different flavors of mis- and disinformation that can exist on search engines, newspapers, television networks, and generative AI platforms. It could be deep fake videos. It could be what you're talking about, tricks about having someone go to the raw coin location, any number of things. Right now, there's a lot of chatter about AI. And because Democracy Works is in the business of election information, and we're known for being the provider for search engines, social media platforms, we're again being looked at to be a source of information for these platforms. We can only surface the who, what, when, and how of elections. We can't do anything about deep fake videos, all the other stuff. But when it comes to when the election is, how do you register for it? Who's on the ballot? Where do I vote? That's our sweet spot. So when I look at the challenges leading into the presidential for democracy works, is ensuring that accurate information type that we specialize in is ubiquitous. It's available via every place that a person might look because what we've learned is that folks are not always looking on the election site. They're going to Google it. They might see it on a social media network. They might now, the suspicion is, use a generative AI platform like ChatGPT. That is a challenge and it's the one that's top of mind for me, ensuring access to accurate information. When you say use a platform, you mean actually query into chat GPT, where do I vote? Sure. Again, these platforms are nascent and we don't have a lot of data on exactly how people are using it. But 
a lot of them are operating like search engines. You're asking a question the same way that you would ask Google a question. And Google, by extension, is moving a lot of its search functions to leverage AI. So is Bing. And so, you know, so are other Exactly. Microsoft and Bing. So that that is, I mean, AI is not new. It's more about this generative AI flavor of it. Machine learning has been around for a while. All these things have been out for a while, but now the content creation and the attention that it's getting is far greater and people are leaning into it. So if I'm already here writing my term paper on ChatGPT, oh, by the way, when is this election again? And you might just go into the same search box. Got it. So you talked about having information from 42 states, something like that. It seems like for the mission, you would want to have complete coverage. What stands between you and those final states? So I'll untangle that. We have direct relationships with 42 states. The remainder, we have the information. We're just required to hand collect it. What's going on in those eight states that, 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 that they're acting that way? Or is it a lack of capability to do it electronically? Well, if I give you the list of states, you might be able to figure it out for yourself. What I mean, it's it's primarily states, Tennessee, those types of states that are not too um, excited right now about partnering with a nonprofit, you know, that sort of thing. Or suspicious of, how would we put this? <laughs> a little retrograde in their attitudes towards democracy. Yeah. And, and here, here's an example. Right? So New Hampshire, I believe, is an example of a non-participating state. And their license plate says, live free or job. There's a free or die. I mean, they're just understandably concerned about third-party intervention. Now, again, our relationship with the states is one of support. We don't charge states. It's really about voluntarily, you know, make this data available to the public by getting it to us because we've got technology hooks and technology relationships that are ensured that they get to the masses. It's a great value proposition. Everything that we do, we do it in partnership with working groups that are existing at the state or election offices. I think it's great. If it's not for you, state X or Y, then we understand. Doesn't mean we're not going to try. We regularly contact our friends at the election, EAC, Election Assistance Commission, and, and, and various entities because we come at this from community and we want to make sure that people can trust where the information is going to and consequently coming out of. But people work at their at their own speed and we'll be there when other states want to participate in VIP or some of the other data initiatives that we operate. You mentioned relationships with platform companies like Google, Facebook, et cetera. What, what is the state, as you view it, of their commitment to the democratic process through helping provide the correct information and other things that they're up to? Sure. So none of these platforms, whether it's Google or Facebook or anybody else, wants to be known as the home of mis and disinformation. It's just bad for business. It's bad for your brand. At the same time, these platforms understandably don't want to be seen as favoring one side or the other. And unfortunately, pro-democracy initiatives have been polarized and characterized as favoring one side over the other. These organizations they want to do the right thing. They know that they have megaphones. They know that in many respects, they are the public meeting places in the United States, but they don't want to get in trouble for looking like they're too much of this or too much of that. And that's the territory that we navigate. I mean, we tried to create incentives for them to allow the distribution of accurate information on their platforms. 
and try to remove the disincentives. And one of those disincentives that we remove is that we remain so fiercely nonpartisan because I think it's difficult if you partner with the organization that's seen as partisan to then be hailed in front of a frisky house when the next time they're doing these sorts of inquiries and have to justify why you spoke to this, that, and the other. We take them at face value. We do everything we can to help these platforms, but we also understand that as part of a pro-democracy movement, we need to make it easy for them to distribute that information. You have potential partnerships with, to use your term, the more frisky elements on both sides, right? There's kind of a consolation of platforms like Truth Social and many others that are clearly right-leaning and then there are left-leaning groups that don't hide how biased they are, Occupy Democrats or a bunch of them. Have, have you had interest or partnerships from those more partisan groups that want to still use your data because they're interested in getting out their type of people? Absolutely. I can't speak to the, the social media platforms on the various sides. I can tell you there are things unlikely that treat social or anyone on that side of the uh, political spectrum when it comes to social media is going to come calling democracy works. That's an unlikely scenario. But if they're smart, they would. So it's many of that. But what we do have, for example, for our observable platform is that we have groups that are on the conservative side of a particular issue that is looking to activate their audiences that use our product. And it's the same thing on the other side of the aisle. We consider ourselves the public library. You've got a library card. We've got a book full of uh, election information, voting guidance to, to, to give to you. We'd all put our thumb on the scale there. I hope not to have to grapple with some of the difficult conversations that would come from a potential outreach from an organization that was supporting election denialism. I think that's the, the, the red line that in my head, I've kind of cemented and not done a very good job of putting down on paper. But as long as you believe in an electoral process and a fair electoral outcome, you should have access to the data that, that Democracy Works is able to provide. That strikes me as challenging when one party is fairly permeated by that. I try to separate, and I, I know this is difficult, the politics from the elections. Even when it comes to elected positions, you have folks that talk a game about how they're going to take X or Y um, activity against what you'll characterize as the progressive or pro-voting movement. But then they'll have election workers in the jurisdiction that they supervise that really just want to put on a good election. So there's the politics that happen on TV, and then there's the real work, the <laughs> unforgivingly difficult work of election administration in this country. And you have it in red states, and you have it in blue states, and I've yet to encounter or an election official is doing day-to-day -day work that doesn't want people to vote, doesn't want people to get registered, is not trying to run a good election that has the highest level of participation possible. There's a kind of a TV movie happening on the one hand, and then there's actually what happens with election administration. We choose to support election administration on that front. When you think about yourself as a representative of a pro-democracy movement, something that is very honorably trying to keep the systems something that we can trust, something that works to actually fairly count the vote. Who do you think of as strong partners in that effort outside of your group? Over the last couple of years, by virtue of a position, I've been invited into some rooms where folks are talking about democracy and the dangers there too. And 
the list is so long of people that I admire, um, the people that I've met that are really, really doing a lot of work. I almost feel bad singling out any particular entity or name. I'm going to say one, and his name's Ian Basson at Protect Democracy. Every time I hear him and then I'll see him on TV and I'll send him an email and say, hey, man, that was a good hit. Uh, I, I really liked how you drew a particular analogy about the state of democracy as, as you head into this election. There's just so many folks out there. I've learned a lot. I went from being a casual fan of government and, hey, this is great. And isn't it awesome to have three branches of government and all these different things? And it was sort of esoteric to going to a point where, boy, now I, we do work that supports election officials. We do things that make it easier for voters to get access to information. We're working with technology companies so that they can do their part to ensure access to information. I'm now seeing how a sausage is made and it's grown my appreciation for the field and also the importance of a functioning government and democracy. I used to love having policy debates with people. Unfortunately, I don't have policy debates with people anymore because it's all about democracy. It's about supporting the continued existence of the system. I hope that at some point soon we can go back to having policy discussions. For right now, it's all about upholding democracy and the cast of characters that are out there working to do it is, is really, really long. I do a disservice and I probably only did by only singling out the Bassin, but that's my view of it right now. When you're heading up an organization that is growing in its mission, that is tackling big things like this, you also have to grow, I think, as a leader, as a manager to keep pace, to do a good job in that role. How have you changed since? coming in to, to Democracy Works? And what do you want to do going forward with regard to yourself? I say this often, and it's a bit of a cop-out. I have a hard time asking for help. And in the next extension of ratings, a hard time asking for help, I can definitely not ask for money. And when you're running a nonprofit, it's very, very difficult to run the organization if you're unwilling to ask for help and or money. And I think that that's something that it's a muscle that I've had to develop over the last couple of years. I mean, we are today a 52-person nonprofit based in Brooklyn that is upholding some pretty big systems in support of democracy. You cannot do it with just the 52 people on our roster. Having this humility and also having the courage to say, hey, we really could use some help on, on the path that we're going. That has been something that I need to develop because I've kind of come up as a, you know, figure it out for yourself. I think from an organizational management perspective, I don't know a lot about the intricacies of how to run an election. So leaning into bringing in talent and understanding what you don't know and making sure to surround yourself with the people that know it far better than you and then letting them go out there and do the presenting and do the work, critical as well. We lead with organization. We lead with team. We show all of our players on the roster and, and it's critical. It develops your organization. It's great for succession planning the same way that Seth is only here 10 years or so. I'm not going to be here forever either. And these organizations can go through swoons if they have a sudden departure of key executives. So continuing to uh, develop the organization where large, understand the importance of that has been a uh, part of my development cycle. I haven't been in this sort of position before. So just knowing the importance of succession planning, I think those two features are the big ones. It's, it's knowing that an organization needs to live on and it requires the support of the public, support of as many people as possible. And also you've got to grow in your organization so I can um, outlive and outlast you. 
Do you worry about security of your systems? I mean, one could imagine a scenario where there's a broad-based attack, even from nation states, on election infrastructure, which could include you guys. Do you worry about that? And what kind of precautions do you take? So we won't give away the store from a cybersecurity uh, perspective, but you know we've been identified as critical infrastructure in the past, and we work closely um, with CISA and some of the working groups, especially around election time, to ensure that our systems, such as they are, are not negatively impacted. On the flip side, we have also been written into a number of states' contingency plans in the event that their sites go down. And in 2020, a number of states had outages on election day. And that traffic was sent over to, to our sites. Listen, it's a risk. We invest in having engineering teams and having the appropriate backup systems and, and leveraging technologies to make sure that we have redundancies. One of the features of, of the work that we do is that we don't really collect any PII, personally identifiable information. So it's not really a honeypot if you're looking to individuals. But yeah, I mean, similar to any other organization out there that's dealing in data, there is risk. Luckily for us, and Hopefully this conversation doesn't change it. We, you know, we are somewhat under the radar. So folks usually go to other places when they want to cause you know, a denial of service type attack. It's part of our contingency plan. It's part of our security planning. And, and we do the things that responsible organizations do to ensure that our systems are, are up when people need them. Earlier in this conversation, you alluded to all of the change that's going on, changes in election rules, changes in technology. What were you thinking of? What are the the most significant changes that have happened in the last couple of years and continue to happen? I think it's the way that people find their information about elections. I'm a bit of an old timer. This is not video, but I'm holding my voter registration card. I think most people do not walk around with their voter registration card. You know, they need to go out and find information. And where they look to find it more and more, and this has been cemented now over a couple of presidential cycles is on places like search engines and social media platforms. Voter behavior has changed. And in 2020, because of the pandemic, voting behavior changed, more of a reliance on absentee uh, voting and, and vote by mail. A lot of this stuff is supported by technology or facilitated by technology. If you can leverage technology to get information with people, you're ahead of the game. And this question that we now often have democracy works when we try to think about why aren't voter participation rates higher? Is it access or is it apathy? We are working on access all the time. It's access to the information. Our hypothesis now is that if you increase access to the information, the ease of accessing the information, you're going to be able to positively impact apathy because you're engaging with people and they're getting the information. They don't have to rely on a voter registration card in their pocket or whatever drawer they shove it in. They can Google it. They can find it on Snapchat or TikTok or Facebook or whatever. They're finding the resources where they are. We need to meet voters where they are in a way that I don't know that folks focused on 20, 30 years ago. And with technology, everything moves faster. We're talking about AI, this presidential election. I wonder what we'll be talking about in 2028. But at the core of it all, people need to know how to navigate a system that unfortunately is complicated when it comes to voting. And we want to make sure that we are nimble enough to be on every platform or in every place that a voter might look. I don't know if you're aware of a, a woman named Kat Calvin and a group called Spread the Vote. I am, yes. So she has identified one of the big problems in the country is lack of ID, which is broadly 
shocking how many millions of people that live here that are documented citizens that don't have IDs. And it plays into the voting question because a lot of places you need an ID to vote, you need a voter ID or, and you can't get it otherwise. Have you ever contemplated? So a lot of those people she's, she tells me don't have a phone, don't have access to technology. They're not reachable through the kind of tech that you build. Have you thought about like how to be helpful for that 10 plus 10, 11% of the voting age population that isn't able to deal with tech? No, it's it, it's a great question. One that was presented to us all the time. Lauren Kunis at Boat Riders is also doing a lot of um, good work when it comes to the question of voter ID. I mentioned earlier mission creep and this challenge of not trying to do everything. We understand that when we made a bet at this organization to lean into technology, that we necessarily were not going to be able to reach certain people. And I actually use my mom as an example, 73 years old. She's got Parkinson's. She's living in a disability facility. She's not getting her voting information from herself. She gets her voting information because she votes by mail in Florida. I bring her ballot and we talk about it together. A 52-person, 62-person organization is not going to be able to, to do that sort of work. So it's it's this 80-20 game. Can we do 80% of it 100% well? Or are we going to try to water ourselves down? We'll support every organization. And that's why we've got an API. If they get their information, they're going to use technology to bring it in and they make it reproduce it in a format that they can reach those audiences that we can't. We live in service to the space. But unfortunately, we at Democracy Works, it's hard for us to do that sort of on the ground work that is so important, but just outside of our scope to make sure that folks that are not connected are able to get our information. We have to work in partnership with others and do have those resources. When you think about the vulnerability, the fragility of our democracy at this moment, what makes you optimistic and what makes you pessimistic? The optimism comes from, it kind of always works out. It's messy, but boy, we had some points in this country's history. If you look around the world, it hasn't worked out everywhere. I'll only have the frame of the United States when I say it, it always works out. And this is the oldest sustaining democracy that we have. I mean, in this country, I could be optimistic because there's no evidence to the contrary yet. Why am I pessimistic? Because as a student of history, I have never seen anything like this when it comes to what is being portrayed as a voter apathy, almost like a malaise, a, a comatose state where you don't see what's happening. It's coming in slow motion and it's like, oh, it's okay. It's okay. And I may be undercutting my reasons for optimism because I just said it's always going to be okay. But yeah, is everyone awake and watching what is unfolding and what the potential is? We just commemorated, you know, observed three years of January 6th. And I, was ta- I remember talking to my mom two or three days after and she grew up in the Dominican Republic and, and she said, why are you surprised? This sort of stuff happens. You remember I left during the coup in 66 and I'm like, yes, but this is the United States. And she said, so what? It happens everywhere. I still have that optimism, like, but not here. But I also got 2015 acuity and what, what I'm seeing is not positive, but this is where you know organizations like ours jump in and do their part. We've got to do what we can to ensure that this messy experiment continues to go in the way that we intend for it to be. 
and doesn't get hijacked. It's the best that I've got for you right now. I mean, I'm optimistic because over 200 plus years, we've had peaceful transitions of power and all that stuff. We've had elections and boy, wouldn't it be something? Yeah. Yeah. Nathaniel, take me to a dark place, essentially. And you're making me undo my logic as I I sneak through it. Anyone who's paying attention, who has some lens of history, it is a trying time. It's a scary time. Uh, Yeah, that's what it is. I was and I married out on Saturday because they were doing things on PBS and they likened this to some of the fractures during the Civil War period. And I'm like, oh boy, I hope we don't have to go through a Civil War. Is it really going to get that bad? I sure hope not. I'm in rooms where everyone is working on the issue. So I'm seeing people that are activated and and organizations and folks that are really caring about this. I'm not in the same rooms with the people that are attempting to undo it. That gives me some comfort, but that also might be you're just not there to see it. And that's that's worrying. So from the perspective of Democracy Works, if we're talking after the election in 2024, what would you like to have seen happen? What would be success for you? Oh, boy. A high level of voter engagement, participation rates that we can be proud of, a result that people can trust in. I think those are the ones I can say without getting myself in trouble from a 501c3 perspective. I mean, we, I signed up for democracy first and democracy works. And, you know, this is, this is kind of what I bought into being a, you know, an active citizen in this country. And I want things to be the way that they've been. And I, I, I don't want to upset this. I don't want to fall into a different system of government. Let's say hypothetically that, that some candidate of either party was to win and attempt to really rig elections, like in a way that never had been tried before. Do you think our system is resilient against the head of state trying to actively subvert things? We already did part one of this in 2020, where the head of state, who was the head of state until January 20th, attempted it. I don't want to be, again, one of those, oh, the system's going to hold and the system's going to hold and the system's going to hold. And I don't want to just hold because hold is not a strategy. I don't have a great answer for your questions. I think I have a lot of the same concerns and fears that you're grappling with. And all I can do is put my head down and ensure that folks have access to information and we're doing what we can to support election officials and that we run a good election. One of the things that keeps me warm at night when I think about this library card analogy that I drew earlier is if everyone gets a fair chance to vote, the good ideas went out. The good ideas went out when everyone has a fair chance to vote and everything's on the up and up. It's when you get into the funny business that you start to skew outcomes. So I choose the side of getting everyone the the opportunity to vote, make sure that they have the access and the opportunity and let the chips fall where they may. The right side, the correct side will win when everyone has the opportunity to vote. I really honor that attitude. I, I'm not sure it holds true in human history all the time, but I hope it does here. What should I have asked you that I failed to? I'm not sure. You covered all the good stuff and you got me in the, uh, the ones where I, I start to get the hairs on the back of my neck stand up when it comes to outcomes of the election, because in my personal life, everyone's a partisan in their own light. I'd love to have policy debates and things of that nature. 
but it makes makes me a little bit skittish to talk about things sometimes because of the position that I'm in, because of the organization that I'm a part of, and because of the critical function of the work that we do. And be so careful with how you handle just about everything that you do in, in this work because the stakes are so high, especially this year. I, I don't want to mess up anything. You covered all the good bases and you even put me in a couple of corners and I appreciate that because it got me a chance to thank. My purpose is not to put you in a corner, but I could have gone further with that. <laughs> <laughs> and I likely would have enjoyed it, but we would have had to turn off the mic. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Lovely to get to know you a little bit. Anything else you want to say? No, listen, I, I appreciate the work that you do. I uh, listened to a couple of the episodes and it's just so important to highlight the people that are doing this sort of work, you know, without being too hysterical about it. We're in a very important time and, and it's important to elevate voices and elevate organizations so that people know what the stakes are, the work that we're doing and how they can contribute to continue uh, this democracy, however imperfect it may be. Agreed. That was Luis Lozada. He's at democracy.works. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. The Great Battlefield is now part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about other podcasts that cover democracy and civic engagement. You can also help me by leaving comments and good ratings on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere and by sending me suggestions for great guests to nperlman at gmail.com.